Hey there, architecture enthusiast. Nikita Reed here, inviting you on an incredible journey through time and space with my podcast, Tangible Remnants. Historic preservation and sustainability? Let's go ahead right now and debunk the myth that they are opposites. In fact, they are two sides of the same coin, shaping our collective future. In a work environment, it has been challenging because I've had to probably do more than double just to make sure that I quote unquote fit in. But the environments that have allowed me to do me on the front end, I've been extremely successful. You look at all these PhDs, they've built that on the backs of our elders. Absolutely. What they consider themselves to be experts at is what they've worked with us to achieve. I know we have to. We have to prioritize people before products and before place. Join me as we unravel the stories of historic buildings shaped by the people of a specific era and often influenced by race and gender. These tangible remnants are windows into our past and guideposts for the future. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe now to Tangible Remnants. Let's explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender. We tried charming our way in, but they still said no. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't let us in. It worked before for other things, but not but actually, no. Not this one. Girl, you're a married woman. Cut, 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 John. Cut, cut, cut. What I want to say. Charming her way into the slaughterhouse. Show a little, show a little, show a little shoulder. Show a little ankle. <laughs> Hello or guten Tag. Welcome back to She Builds Podcast, where we share stories about women in the design and construction field, one lady at a time. Like we mentioned, this season we're going international. All the ladies of our second season will be from all over the globe. On today's episode, we will talk about Han Schroeder, who grew up in the famous Schroeder House and was one of the first women architects in the Netherlands. I'm Lizzie Rahr, enjoying fall a.k.a. Summer, in San Francisco. I'm joined by my fellow co-hosts, Jessica and Nurjidi. I'm Nurjidi Rivas, advocating for equity, diversity, and inclusion in Houston, Texas. And I'm Jessica Rogers, filling out my absentee ballot in Washington, D.C. Hey, hey. Yeah, yeah. Like always, our quick disclaimer. The three of us are not historians, nor are we experts on this subject. We're just sharing stories about the information that we find about each woman. If we get our facts a little mixed up, please forgive us. Leave us a comment and we will all continue learning. Okay, I'm excited about today's episode. Warum? Or why? <laughs> so I mentioned that Han grew up in the very famous Schroederhaus, or the Schroeder House as we learned about it in school. And so we're going to talk a fair amount about her mother and the design of that house at the beginning, because Han notes that it was very influential in how she designed later in life. And it had a really great impact on her growing up. That's so amazing that she lived that. The Schroeder House is one of my favorite projects that we studied in school. I can't wait to hear all the history behind it. Yeah. Okay. so Han was born Johanna Schroeder 
on July 16, 1918, in Utrecht, in the Netherlands. She was the daughter of Fritz Schroeder, a lawyer, and Truus Schroeder Schrader, a pharmacist. The family lived in a traditional bourgeois house in the center of Utrecht, where Fritz also had his offices. So Han's mother, Truus, had very modern ideas about how she wanted to live her life, and it caused a lot of disagreement between her and Fritz. What did they disagree on? Social status, independence, and how to raise the kids. Yeah, all three of those things can cause friction if people aren't on the same page. So, Yeah. So Truce's sister, Anne, lived in Amsterdam, and she was connected with many artists of the De Stijl movement. And that's how Truce was introduced to these modern ideas about society, life, and art. Ooh, De Stijl is one of my favorites. It's a Dutch art movement all about pure abstraction and simple visual compositions, vertical and horizontal lines, black and white, and primary colors. Sounds easy, but it's not. And it's also pretty visually stimulating. Yeah. So Truus was hanging out with her sister in Amsterdam, learning about these things. And back in Utrecht, the circles that she and her husband were in were more old fashioned, it sounds like. He was also 11 years older than her. And Truce is quoted saying, I hardly met any people who had a feeling for what was modern, not through my husband. My husband was 11 years my senior. He had a very busy practice and a great many acquaintances. Some of his family lived in Utrecht and they weren't at all interested in that sort of thing. It was only through my sister that ideas came in from the outside. Hmm. Sounds like the age difference might have had an impact on their relationship. Yeah, it does. So in 1911, right after Fritz and Truss were married, Fritz had a desk built and delivered to the house by Jan Rietveld, a local furniture maker. He delivered the desk with his son, Gerrit, and Truss commented on the desk, saying that she was not a fan of such ornate and traditional furniture. And when she recalls the story, she always mentions the eye contact that Gerrit and she had and that she could tell he had similar feelings. Ooh. Yep. And it gets even messier because Gerrit had also gotten married in 1911. Wait, what? Yeah. So apparently Gerrit came by the house quite often after this first encounter Truss and Fritz had several more furniture pieces made by Gerrit and his father's shop. And if anything needed fixing, Gerrit came by. And eventually they started talking about more than just furniture. And it is said that this is where their relationship and eventual affair began. Nu komt de app out to mau. Mm-hmm. So in 1921... Fritz suggested that Truss redo one of the rooms in the house as a private sitting room or a study for her, and she asked Gerrit to redesign it. She wanted a very modern design, which was very different from the heavy, dark style of the traditional house. This room ended up being more than a retreat space for Truss, but a space where she could live and discuss the life she wanted. And then, in 1923, Fritz died. Ooh. So Fritz died. Did Garrett leave his wife to start a new life with Drus? Nope. He never left his wife. 
but they continued to have an affair until his wife passed away 35 years later. (gasps) 35 years? Yeah. Talk about commitment. I know. (laughs) So Trus is left a widow and a single mother of three. And she decided that this was her time to break out of the traditional lifestyle that she had been tethered to through her husband, including their house. So she asked Herit to design her a new house. I feel like this is the part of the story where Lizzie would say, oh, I see where this is going. (laughs) (laughs) But do you? Yes. I think I do. Okay. Jessica does. Yeah. Okay, let's see. (laughs) So together... Rietveld and Trus designed the iconic Rietveld Schroederhaus. The Schroederhaus was groundbreaking in many ways. So after Trus's husband passed away, she took all of the ideas about how she wanted to live and raise her family, and she channeled them into the design of the house. So Han wrote that her mother decided that the house, quote, should be based on and express freedom, openness, and flexibility. And that the program that she laid down was, in essence, springing from new philosophies pertaining to the education of her children, family structure, as well as life and task of the mother as head of the family and as an otherwise involved woman in her own right. That is so interesting. I never thought about the Schroeder house like that. Yeah. So... In the design of the house, the main living area and the bedrooms are on the upper level of the house, and they are one completely open room, which can be separated by moving partitions to create individual separate spaces. Trus wanted less boundaries between her and her children, and she wanted them to be part of discussions that she had with Gerrit about the design, as well as visiting artists who would come to see the house and discuss and critique these ideas. Yeah, this is one of my favorite projects because it's so versatile and the ideas of architectural boundaries or lack thereof. Mm -hmm. I'm loving learning how this played out in their family life, how their life influenced architecture. I don't remember learning that in class. Yeah, I thought that the architecture influenced their life, not the other way around. Right. But Mm. it's, it's a symbiotic process, right? For sure. For sure. It's interesting because I think of like the with this like concept of openness, it reminds me of today's open concept that you see in home designs. So like it's just like the they were ahead of its time. Right. Like Mm -hmm. the open floor plan and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. for sure. Yeah. I don't remember learning the backstory of why it was designed that way either. Like when we were in school. We learned about it more as a design, but it's so interesting to see how Truce really was the driving force behind the ideas that created the design. Yeah. So, as you can see, Han, who was only six when the house was designed and built, grew up surrounded by very iconic architecture, modern ideas, and cutting-edge figures in the design world. She said that she was usually asked to move the partitions of the house as a demonstration for visitors, and therefore she was listening in on the conversations that were being had, which is how her mother wanted it. Han wrote, quote, Discussions at our home amongst the most important leading young progressive architects, designers, and other artists were vivid, often emotional, and always interesting. Not gonna lie, that sounds like a cool way to grow up. 
Yes, this is fascinating. Imagine if that had been our upbringing. How incredible and influential. <laughs> I wonder as a child, was she able to appreciate everything that was going on? I think so. She notes it as a big influence in her design principles later in life. So Truss and Gerrit continued their relationship despite his marriage and six children. And they even opened an architectural office, Schreder and Riefeld Architekten, on the ground floor of the Schroederhaus, with Gerrit as architect and Truss as interior designer. Talk about mixing work with pleasure. Yeah, no shame. Mm -hmm. Right? Well, anyway, so Han not only grew up in this iconic house, but she grew up around Rietveld and his office, designing furniture and other projects. And she was allowed to help make study models and prototypes. When she was around eight years old, she said that she was put in charge of figuring out how to bend a piece of plywood into an acute curve using no mechanical tools. OMG, what an education. Yeah, I think it's interesting that she was able to learn about the craft, but to also be exposed to an architecture firm, too. That's pretty neat. Yeah. So... They did this through a series of soaking and adjusting clamps, and Han wrote that there were definitely errors and mishaps, but eventually, quote, it all ended in a chair, which had a great influence on Alto's bent plywood furniture of 1927 onward. Wait, what? What chair is this? Yeah, so she didn't mention which chair it was in her writing, but what I could find of Liefeld's furniture designs and the dates that she gave, I believe she's referring to the bureaustool or the bugle chair that Liefeld designed in 1927. I'll add a photo in the show notes for people to see. Hmm. Can we talk about how she worked on something that influenced Alvar Alto? <laughs> Famous architect Alvar Alto? As an eight-year-old? Mm -hmm. Right? I was still playing with Legos at that age. <laughs> That's wild. Yeah, I wasn't even thinking about design at that age. She started so young. Right? I mean, she was just entrenched in design from yeah. like as How could long she as she can remember, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So in 1933, as a teenager, Han trained under the furniture maker Gerard van de Groningen in Utrecht in carpentry and furniture making. Gerard was Rietveld's carpenter, and he manufactured several of his famous chair designs. So growing up, while she was on breaks from school, she would help out and work in Rietveld's studio and office. And at first, she helped with model making, and eventually she was working on structural drawings of various architectural and interior designs. Wow. Talk about some hands-on training. Right? <laughs> I mean... <laughs> <laughs> So in 1936, she starts formal education in architecture and she attends the Federal Institute of Technology in Zurich. And she graduated in 1940 with a degree of Diplom Architect. Today, we can compare her degree to a major in architecture with a minor in structural engineering. And she described it as at least comparable with a master's degree of MIT or Yale. So she did all that in four years. That's some Julia Morgan speed, right? <laughs> <laughs> so after she graduated in 1940, World War II had started and the Netherlands was German occupied. 
So she didn't want to return. And Dr. Siegfried Gideon, who was secretary general of CM, the International Congress of Modern Architecture, asked Han to help him complete and edit his book, Space, Time and Architecture. So she spent the year living with the Gideons at their home in Zurich and working on the project with Siegfried. She wrote, this was a unique opportunity to study the method of thinking and working of this brilliant mind. So it sounds like many famous artists, art collectors and prominent architects would come to their house for dinner and that there were lively discussions with them and even just with the family. Hmm. Something that Hans is already used to. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Dude, I think we read excerpts of that book in theory class. Yep, we sure did. Especially when we were learning about Corbu and CIAM. However, I'm pretty sure I would have paid more attention if I knew that a woman was involved in the space, time, and architecture book. It would have broken up the monotony of, you know, learning of yet another dead architectural theorist male. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, in 1941, the war was still going on. So Han took a designer job offer in Indonesia. However, various things stalled her on her way to Indonesia, and she ended up stranded in Portugal for three and a half years while the war raged on. So instead, she spent those years working for the Netherlands Embassy and the Red Cross. In 1944, she was able to leave Portugal when she was transferred to London. There, she worked at the Department of the Interior of the Netherlands government and was asked to make working drawings of emergency housing so that it could be built following the liberation. But she felt that the design for this housing was, quote, unfit for human beings. So she, yeah, strong words. So she refused to do the work and she actually applied for a transfer to a more productive position. Hmm. So. Next, she was assistant to the technical director of the Netherlands Office for Relief and Rehabilitation. That department was in charge of buying technical equipment that a war-ravaged country needs to get back on its feet. She described the experience as really chaotic, but also said that she learned a lot. Yeah, what a resume. (laughs) This seemed so far removed from Han's upbringing, and I'm sure that with the uncertainty of war, the, the chaotic feeling makes sense. But like how to rebuild a city or a country, I think that is definitely a lesson in adaptive reconstruction and a totally different way of thinking. Yeah, she described all of these jobs that she had during the war and how they taught her various valuable lessons in like aspects of project management and other things that later on she would use in life. So. In 1946, Han returned to the Netherlands and started looking for work. It was really hard to find jobs after the war, especially in architecture, because building materials were scarce. So she took what she could find. And she was offered a job as assistant and office supervisor to the director of the Municipal Museum of Modern Art in Amsterdam. At this job, she helped prepare, design, and install exhibitions, including the Le Corbusier exhibition of 1947. Wait, so did Han ever make it to Indonesia? Nope, never made it. The war got in the way. Then that was just, Uh, it was done. Well, supervisor director of a modern museum sounds like a pretty fancy job while you're looking for other architecture jobs. I wouldn't mind that. 
Right. I think she learned more valuable skills in that job as well. So it, it wasn't a bad thing. So in 1949, Han finally gets to work in architecture as a profession. Yay! Whoop, whoop. Finally. <laughs> so Rietveld actually hired her as a draftsperson, and then she moved her way up to personal assistant to Rietveld. And in that office, she worked on a variety of projects, private homes, federal housing projects, a textile plant, schools, a children's hospital, the Netherlands Exhibition Pavilion in Venice, and many other exhibitions and interiors, including the famous Sonsbake Sculpture Pavilion. Wow. She worked on such a variety. Yeah. And then in 1954, Han opened her own office for architecture, interiors, and graphic design. Very cool. That's so neat. What was that like for her? Because remember, before she couldn't find jobs. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, it had been almost 10 years since the war, so I think things were picking up. But when she opened her office, she became one of two independent female registered architects in the country out of about 3,000 registered male architects. She said that, quote, in the world of building, a woman was merely tolerated but not addressed. Mm. Different country, same BS. Yeah, not surprised. Yeah. So her very first commission was actually designing a house for her brother, Binert, who was returning to the Netherlands from Asia. Cool. And after that, she was able to work on some projects that gained her some experience and notoriety. She worked on a lot of youth and learning centers throughout the country, and it became something that she specialized in. So with that expertise, she designed several centers for abandoned children, such as Ellenheim, which was a hotel that was repurposed for the project. And she also designed Deport in Bussum, another home for abandoned children. And because of these projects and her knowledge in that field, she got put on the board of the Juvenile Society for several years. Sounds noble. Yeah, it's really admirable. Mm hmm. So she also worked on several low-cost housing projects. In most of these, she tried to use the ideas that she'd grown up around with flexibility and openness so that she could make the most of these small spaces and not make them feel like a series of small cubicles. One project was apartment housing that she designed for retired single nurses. She said that she used sliding partitions for dynamic flexibility And apparently a few of the nurses wrote to her saying that the space was very well designed and how grateful they were. And the project was actually inaugurated by Queen Juliana. This makes me wonder about the psychological principles of design. It's so cool that she used what she learned in her upbringing and then translated that into her designs. And by the looks of it, it seemed to be really well received. Yeah, exactly. And she also worked on several interiors projects during her career, such as a snack bar and an auditorium for the Academy of Social Work in Amsterdam. And in this project, she again used those strategies to make the space flexible so that the lunch area could be used as overflow seating for the auditorium. And in order to do this quickly and efficiently, she used a pattern of strips inlaid into the flooring that mapped out where furnishing should be placed so that it could be quickly and efficiently changed from one use to the other. How smart. Jessica, it's what you were saying about her growing up in the shorter house totally influenced her designs and way of thinking. 
Exactly. I'm picking up what she's putting down. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. Yeah, she actually wrote about this saying, I presume that my approach to design, namely trying to create the best possible background for specific tasks to be performed instead of accepting an interior as a thing in itself, are rooted here. Talking about her growing up in the house. An interior should allow for behavior of various kinds. The strength and beauty of his background will affect the user and gradually make him see, think, and behave differently. Such a powerful description of what design could be and do. It's also a great way to approach design problems. Maybe something like function before form for those architecture nerds out there. Do you mean form follows function? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I meant what I said, and I'm saying what you're saying. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Same ideas, different phrasing. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But yes, form follows function. (laughs) Um. So in 1963, Han decided to emigrate to the U.S. She had apparently dreamed about this since she was young, and once she set her mind to it, there was nothing stopping her. She even received a large commission for a new project, but she was like, I'm going, it's done, nothing will stop. She wanted to learn about different building materials and techniques and to research institutions for youth and disabled groups. She was 45 years old. Whoa, I wonder what comes next. And at 45, talk about a second career. Right? She really went for it. So she first got a job at a firm in L.A. as a drafts person to become familiar with standards of drafting and detailing. But when she made some design suggestions, the design staff didn't appreciate that very much. So she didn't stay there too long. Some architecture offices are so hierarchical. Yeah, but it also makes me wonder about where design was in the United States. Like, the design aesthetic isn't the same in the States as it is in Europe. So as a foreign architect, Americans probably looked at her crazy. And then not to imply about this firm, but she was a woman. So they probably looked at her crazy then for just being so vocal. What year was it, Lizzie? 1960s. 63. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, Najee, it could have been two years ago. It could have been last week, okay? (laughs) Let's be real. (laughs) So after that, she got another drafting job where they appreciated her design input. And she didn't end up staying long, though, because she was offered and took a part-time teaching job in interior design at Adelphi University in Garden City, New York, on Long Island. She's a little grasshopper. Yep, she just hopped around when she first got here. So after that, teaching took up all of her time, and she never really established a design career in the States. But she did have a really extensive teaching career. She also taught interior design at Parsons School of Design for several years in addition to Adelphi University. And in 1967, she started teaching at the New York Institute of Technology, and eventually she became an assistant professor and she was tenured in 1971. At NYIT, she completely overhauled their interior design curriculum, which brought the program up to be one of the best in the New York area, 
and the student body increased dramatically in the years that she was reworking the curriculum. They went from five to 70 students. Talk about amazing. Yeah. I would have loved to have her as a professor. Right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. In 1979, she left NYIT to take a professorship at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia. And she worked there until her retirement in 1988 as Professor Emerita. Okay, for a second there, I thought you said Virginia Tech, which would mean that Han would have met Milka, our first lady in season one. So on further examination, considering that they were both in academia teaching in the state of Virginia, in my head, Han and Milka have to be friends. Ooh, yes. (laughs) Right? I know, I wondered that too. From 1972 to 1978, Han was the consulting architect for the restoration of her childhood home back in Utrecht. Her mother and several others also assisted on the project. The Schulderhaus is now a museum, part of the Central Museum, and you can visit it. We'll include a link to a video of the house. This house is definitely in my architecture bucket list, even before hearing this story. But now it's like a must. I have to go. I have Mm -hmm. to go. I have to go. When Lizzie and I were in Utrecht, we tried to see it, but it was booked for months. We tried charming our way in, but they (laughs) still said no. (laughs) Yeah, they would not let us in. And we had to settle for a photo from the outside. It was was a bummer. We'll have to go back. Yes. Yes. (laughs) So... After she retired, Han returned to the Netherlands and she passed away in 1992 in Amsterdam. What an amazing story in life. It was such a privilege for her growing up surrounded in all of that design, but also really great to see how she applied all of that in her life and work. Yeah. All right. So before we leave you, we have to tell you who our karyatid is for this week's episode. Jessica, can you remind us what a karyatid is? Yeah. So, some background. A karyatid is a stone carving of a woman used as a column or a pillar to support the structure of a Greek or Greek-style building. Each episode will choose a karyatid, a woman who is working today, furthering the profession through their work, and who ties into the historical woman of our episode. Without further ado, this week's karyatid is... Natalie De Vries. So Natalie is one of the founding members of the Dutch firm MVRDV. They're a pretty famous architecture firm that have done a lot of really cool projects, some of which we studied in school, like the Silodem housing. She's the DV in MVRDV. Did either of you know that there was a woman at the helm of MVRDV? I did not. No, I had no idea there was a woman in MVRDV. And that's like a pretty big firm. architect level. I (laughs) had no idea either. So, yeah. So Natalie said that growing up, culture and architecture were always things that her parents would take notice of. And when something new was being built in their neighborhood, the family would go and check it out. And her parents were also pretty politically active. And she said that she saw how architecture could interact with that and help. She also notes that she loved Dutch art and architecture like the Dishtal movement. 
Mm, I can see why you chose her as a carrier to Lizzie. Sounds like Natalie had a very similar upbringing to Han. Yeah. And she also noted that when she attended TU Delft for school, she realized that part of being a great architect is being hands-on and having real experience. And that also reminded me of Han and how she had a lot of hands-on experience as a child, which shaped her architectural philosophies. That's very Han. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So after school, Natalie worked at Mecano, a fairly well-known Dutch firm. And eventually she left to start MVRDV with her now husband and another friend. Natalie also lectures and teaches at various locations, which also reminded me of Han and her teaching career. I like how both these ladies grew up in the field of design and building, and they apply all of that knowledge to the built environment and also share it with others. That's so amazing and important. Yeah, Mm -hmm. for sure. Okay. Before we say tot scenes, we want to say bedankt to CMYK for the music, John W., our technical producer, and most of all, Dankuvel for listening. We hope you have enjoyed learning about Han and Natalie along with our banter and that you are inspired to find out more about them and other amazing professional ladies. Again, Dankuvel. Please let us know what you thought of our episode. If you enjoyed it, please help us spread the word. Tell your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, your family members, your Tinder dates. Give us five stars on iTunes. Write us a review. This will all help us reach a wider audience and for more people to learn about these amazing ladies with us. We are excited to hear from you and for you to come back and keep learning about women bosses with us. You can email us your thoughts at shebuildspodcast at gmail.com. Leave a comment on our website, shebuildspodcast.com. Or Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at She Builds Podcast and on Twitter, She Builds Pod. Tot scenes. scenes. I've been wondering, should we be defining these phrases for people or we should like? <laughs> nah. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? I'm I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. 
The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like, us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.